time has come to retool our playing for ourselves, for our students, and for the greater groove. And the big question remains, of course, what is the future of strings? Come on, let's talk about it. Tracy Silverman, welcome back to For the Greater Groove, the future of strings. <laughs> and uh, this is the podcast where we talk about rhythm playing on strings and the strings of the future. And I've got a futurist here in the podcast Zoom lounge <laughs> tonight. Jacob Sakelli is here to with his cello. Hey, everybody. And is going to share some of his rhythm secrets with us. Jacob, if you're not familiar with his music, um, he's got a new album coming out, which is just going to be called Two, like Led Zepp Two. But you may know him from his improviser's guide to the cello, which is a really amazing resource for all you cello players out there who are looking for good instruction, really practical, hands-on instruction for the kind of progressive string playing that we are all about on this podcast. Or you may know him from his pickup test uh, site, which is another great resource for anybody who's trying to figure out the best way to get the, the sound they want out of their string instrument. He's been just comparing A being one after the next, and, and uh, it's a wonderful resource. And he's got also, he's going to talk to us about this string tech program, fellowship program that he's got going on and want to hear all about that. So jump in anywhere you like with that, whichever uh, whatever of those things you'd like to chat about. Cool. Well, Tracy, first of all, I'd like to jump in with just a big thank you uh, for having me. I'm such a huge fan of okay, your work. Um, I, I count there, there are three sort of major things in my life that made me a musician and made me want to play music and made me want to, you know, explore interesting things on the cello. And the biggest one I can think of is when I was 14 years old, this group called Turtle Island came ah. to the Interlochen Arts Academy. And yes. it was around the Who Do We Think We Are album, which is yep. to me like the, the apex of Turtle Island for my, my personal taste. And, oh, uh, man... Uh, I can absolutely trace virtually everything I do today to how you guys played, huh. how you made me feel when I heard you. And, of course, all the stuff you've done since, you know, I've, I've just been a giant fan. I feel like I should be interviewing you. <laughs> um, so it, it feels a little bit awkward, but uh, I'm going to do my best today. Well, you know, well, let's start right there from, from the beginning. Um, and let's talk about Mark Summer for a second and how that influenced your playing and where you took what he did and, and where you went with that. Because I'm really interested and really what I want to dig into um, today is, is talking about how you do the rhythmic groove-oriented stuff you do. Because you do a lot of this hammery, hammer-on uh, pits groove stuff yeah. and you also do the bowed groove stuff and, and I'm guessing Mark must have been a huge influence. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, to me Mark is sort of Mark is not only really the first legitimate jazz cellist. Obviously, we had you know bassists and 
uh, guys who, you know, sort of plucked the cello. And then there were a few early attempts, but Mark was the first guy who really yeah. in every way, uh, you know, created some, you know, the first guy who was really able to create something compelling in terms of not just his harmonic language, but of course, uh, his groove uh, and his sense of rhythm that he brought to the instrument. And yeah, as you mentioned, you know, he pioneered so much of the sort of uh, hammering on uh, and chord thing. Uh, he pioneered so much of, you know, even the idea of being able to use your instrument, you know, sort of like a drum, you know, exploring yeah. all of the different rhythmic possibilities, you know, all of his uh, uh, sort of innovations. And also for me, what was really interesting about Mark, especially his playing during that time when you were in the group, you know, uh, uh, who do we think we are? Dan Zone, I think that was the next one. Uh, some of those, you know, you think about, uh, you know, the his world famous uh, or your world famous. Uh, uh, I think Danny arranged it, but the, you know, the who do we think we are? Yeah. Uh, I remember seeing you guys play that, and then listening to that CD probably that particular track even like 8,000 times and I trying to transcribe sort of, but it was impossible for me to figure out exactly who was doing what and how yeah. you guys could really turn it into an orchestra. I mean, I saw it once, but this is like before YouTube, right? Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. you know, I didn't have the, the <laughs> slow down and the rewind and it was really cool because uh, uh, years later, one of the things on the improvisers guide that we do is called the groove of the week. And the very first yeah. person I asked to do one of those um, uh, yes. uh, was Mark. And Mark just volunteered that he would teach uh, that particular groove uh, from Who Do We Think We Are. That's right. And what's so cool right. about that is he said, you know, I was in this group with these master choppers around me. So I didn't have to, you know, I could do the chop, but I also had to figure right. out how to create something that sort of worked with the chop and complemented the chop and, you know, exactly. maybe even could go beyond the chop in, in some ways. And so that was sort of a huge, uh, a huge thing. And, you know, he demonstrated it. And, you know, I, I, uh, you know, after he made that video, I, you know, spent, spent a few months uh, with that <laughs> and started using yeah. some of that stuff. <laughs> and it's been interesting yeah. for me too, because I'm really interested in, in electric stuff. And one of the things that, you know, when you get those types of sounds, you know, with a, a left hand, right hand thing, like Mark was so good at, and uh, there's a guy, uh, uh, Rufus Cappadocia, who does a lot of that kind of technique. He sort of specializes in, you know, a very fast sort of version of that. Mm -hmm. um, is that when you get beyond the acoustic world, there are some interesting uh, issues you come into or possibilities you come into when you're really trying to sort of bifurcate your instrument like that. And the first single off the new album, which is from a knee body tune, uh, I actually uh, did a little video about uh, you know how you can use crossover points uh, in... Uh, in your EQ settings. In other words, finding a specific frequency and uh, routing to stereo so that the lower voice uh, can be processed completely differently. So right. can you get a completely different kind of bass sound happening uh, and completely like different. Like a split, like a keyboard split. Exactly, basically. yeah. And you'll, you'll actually hear that right at the beginning of the track. I have something like a Leslie, although Leslie's don't really work very well with strings for uh, some physics reasons. It's sort of like a fast panning thing. But then on the bottom, uh, from the same pickup, I'm, you know, I have a, a patch 
Uh, and I do it in my Helix, but obviously anybody can do it in, in any type of software or, or, or most effects processors that allow for stereo processing. Uh, uh, I'm, you know, using like a much more kind of bass-esque sound. It's interesting to to work with some of these techniques too, and see how how we can sort of move them ahead uh, with effects. I know you were one of the first ones to, you know, start using uh, you know wall with the chop is an obvious one uh, that comes to mind, and uh, you know things like that. But uh, yeah, there's there's all kinds of all kinds of interesting possibilities that were I think are only just yeah. starting to be explored uh, when you add the effects to things. So that's kind of cool for sure. And now, are you doing that split for those um, listening who may be going to attempt this at home? Are you doing that with through Ableton by routing it differently in Ableton, or yeah. is that happening within the Helix? Yeah, or, yeah. Or? So uh, live, it's happening within the Helix, and the Helix allows you, you know, like with a lot of other EQs, uh, uh, or with uh, excuse me, with other you know split points, uh, to use. Um, you know, either just a standard stereo left, right, or it will allow you to, in fact, uh, uh, use uh, crossover Choose points uh, to split. Frequency. But then when I'm playing frequency, exactly. Then, of course, with the, the cello and the violin, too, especially the cello, I think there's the issue of, you know, uh, topology of, or topography, excuse me, of the, of the, uh, of the pedals themselves, you know, obviously if we lift our foot, we are not able to, right. the cello starts right. moving. So, you know, something that <laughs> yeah. I've done a lot and uh, on our sister site, Electric String Player on YouTube, I have three videos about this, just, you know, ergonomically developing, you know, your foot technique and having a way of arranging your stuff so that yeah. it actually uh, works for the cello. So when you're talking about that many loops and that many sounds, uh, interesting. It becomes it becomes really really interesting. Uh, I have a. This is something you you didn't mention, but while we're on the subject, so you know obviously we all have MIDI controllers like this, or a lot of us do. Uh, this is my Morningstar MC6, and the cool part about this obviously is that with one press uh, you can do something, and then with a hold it you can do send another series of messages and a double tap and a. So what this allows, especially for a cellist to do, this is all sort of within what my foot can reach if I just leave my heel down and sort of move from side to side. Right. How's about that visual, Tracy? Yeah, yeah. free of charge, <laughs> y'all. Give it Toe up. Cam. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but, and so what I can do is, is, you know, essentially I have at least four messages per switch. So within this very tiny package, what I'm able to do is, is, you know, uh, solo, boost, uh, basic pit sound, boost, you know, my delays, you know, different types of loops, uh, on and off, uh, in or out, and then, you know, through using a side chain to program Ableton's uh, uh, so Ableton's So that's hooked looper. up directly, that's hooked up directly to Ableton. Yeah, as yeah, Ableton. exactly. But it, it's also controlling the Helix uh, and can control the Helix as well. And the Helix has analog loops, right? So that's also controlling, you know, my IR stuff and sort of the things that make up my basic pickup tone. 
The last thing that's sort of interesting, and I have this coming out, that I'm also a little bit of an inventor. Not really, but I try to invent things that I think I, I need and hope other people will need it too. But uh-huh. I've, I've just invented something called a cello pedal. And what that does is it attaches to any um, uh, pedal train, pedal board, you know, the flat ones that most of us yeah. use, that hunk of metal. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's like 80 or 90% of people have that one. It's just the one at Guitar yeah. Center pretty much <laughs> or yeah. Amazon. I don't know if people go to Guitar Center anymore. But what it does <laughs> is, is is it allows you to uh, take the, the, uh, uh, the switches, which, of course, once they're on top of a pedal board are really, really high right? Way too high. Again, you have to lift your foot, right? Especially to get to the back row. So what it does is, is it actually creates a desk that attaches to the side of the pedal board. And then you can take off the desk to to, to pack it up and and put it away in your gig bag so that you can now actually reach these. Now your foot is here. I won't do the toe cam again. That was kind of gross. Maybe, (laughs) maybe we can edit that out. (laughs) And now your foot is literally touching the floor and you just have to do this. Instead yes. of, ugh, yeah, ugh, yeah, right. Interesting, different problems that cellists have that guitar players don't think about. Exactly. Yeah. Or violin players. Right. In this case, or violin players. So yeah, I thought this was like a very special, you know, just something I wanted to invent for us. So if any of you guys are interested in very that, interesting. Uh, it's going to be called the cello pedal, and uh, I think they'll be on my website. Uh, well, they will be, and there'll be a separate website for them too. And we should be, we should start mass production of that within a couple of weeks. So you know, if you're interested. Oh, wow. Uh, it's for you guys. <laughs> I learned how to wow. make metal things just for you guys. So, uh, <laughs> very cool. Are you make? Are you producing them yourself? No, 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 no. But I learned about you know the the yeah, the, the schematics and designing and how to you know all of the different issues with uh, you know uh, yeah. molds versus uh, you know pressed metal and all of the different uh, all of the different ways you can manufacture things and lose a ton of money. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm familiar with that. You know, I've been on a, it's about, a, I don't know, about an eight year process right now on an invention of my own. Really? Um, yes. Do tell. Which I will just briefly tell because I, you know, I would have to sign, you'd have to sign an NDA. Right. And, and for, then for kill me. To, to, and then kill you. <laughs> but, um, but uh, it's basically um, some, a, a strap, a, a violin strap, neck strap. Uh-huh. For a violin. Interesting. For an acoustic instrument. Ah, for an acoustic violin. Interesting. Okay. Interesting. Right. Interesting. One of those one of those expensive ones you can't just drill holes into. Right. Right. That is the issue, isn't it? <laughs> if you can drill the holes, <laughs> it's a little put more. A, put, put a bolt in <laughs> a nut in yeah. it. And <laughs> get a crescent wrench and, you know. Yeah. So so that's uh, to to do because so many people, you know, over the years come up to me like because I have this, you know, um, neck strap and chest support. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's low on. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. 20 years or so. Yeah. Uh, people are like, oh, if I can only get one of those for my violin or for my viola, really, you know. So um, so that's what this is. Very so I've been cool, working on it for man. years. I've patented it already twice. Changed the design, repatented it, and now about to change it again before hitting the market. But oh man, we're we're uh, we're getting it. You know, do you know what it's going to be called? Are you going with the Silverman strap or the? Uh, Probably either the Silverman strap or the violin strap. Got it. That is awesome, man. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) 
I founded a school called uh, String Project LA. And this was the first school in America that was just dedicated to creative string playing. And we had an entire curriculum for, uh, you know, basically five planks. So there was rhythm and groove, obviously. There was uh, something we called uh, string yoga. There were singer-songwriter skills, you know, chart reading, arranging techniques, all, all the business. Um, and it, it, we had this five-part curriculum, and it basically went for about three years, six semesters, you know, covered different styles. And we did that for about 10 years. Uh, my partner. I saw that. I, I was reading about that on your uh, on your website yeah. and found some stuff online. But it, is it not happening anymore? No, we don't do it anymore. Uh, apparently, Tracy, the world is not quite ready for something like that. Particularly, I tell you, man, it, it the world needs it. It just doesn't know it quite yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's probably a better way to put it. You know, I I remember we had, but one of the huge aspects of String Project that, you know, just because. I'm a musician, and because, you know, my life was so transformed uh, by, you know, seeing you guys and seeing, uh, you know, uh, the other big experience I always think about when I think about things that changed my life is I was, you know, maybe a seven-year-old kid, eight-year-old kid at this little church in uh, Kentucky where I was living at that time. And this guy, Eugene Friesen, came and asked at the end of the class if I wanted to come and improvise with him. And I was like, what's what's that all about? And that huh. was kind of the other sort of big thing. For, but it, wow. the, the point is we're just completely dedicated to bringing yeah. people in. Whenever somebody was in L.A., we brought them in. We did it, you know, on our own dime. You know, we awesome, did it because man. it was like, you know, the right thing to do for the kids. I'm always... I think it's just the worst kind of educational malpractice. You've probably run into this in your touring. You know, anyone in my mind, you know, I'll say this about you, like worth their salt would want to bring you into their university if you happen to be in town. I mean, that's crazy to deprive the kids of such a singular experience as seeing Tracy Silverman, as I can absolutely attest. Um, and you know, it's just amazing, even these like gajillion dollar programs with, you know, administrators that are getting paid way too much money will just nickel and dime, yeah. like, yeah. It, you know, and it's like, oh, no, we don't want to give like 300 bucks to bring in trade. It's just insane to me. So, no, you know, know we would have, you know, like when uh, uh, a version, of, uh, the la a later version of Turtle Island came in, you know, we would bring in, you know, Mads or we'd have uh, uh, Mark or we would have, uh, you know, Christian Hauser, you know, whoever was in town who who was someone in the string world. And we were usually one of the only ones that were <laughs> hosting them. Wow. Hey, so tell me about this tech fellowship. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, one of the things that happened after String Project LA um, is, is I started to think uh, a lot about um, how I could sort of reach even more people and also the fact that... Um, uh, I wanted to be able to work more on, with other people, I should say, on the stuff that I was working on right now. In other words, you know, if you teach and you create a school and, you know, we had other people teaching, uh, you know, the younger classes and all of that's great, but I really felt like, I, you know, once we refine things to a certain point, I wanted to get to the point where I was working with people that are really trying to push the boundaries of things. Basically, you yeah. know, uh, what are the things that are vexing me right now or that I'm working on and kind of work on yeah, that. Yeah, more pro-level, uh, uh, yeah. you know, um, 
upper level stuff. Yeah, upper level stuff. Now, obviously, you know, pro level when we talk about electric strings, like for example, there are so few string players that are sort yeah. of, you know, it's like 99% of even I would say the amplified string world is still mostly in the, uh, hey, I own a pedal kind of world. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, as we say on the pickup test, our my most famous uh, video that has, I think, more dislikes than likes, which I'm very proud of. It must be good if, you know, people don't like it as well, is one, it's a two-minute video called What's the Best Pickup? And essentially, I start it by saying, I don't know, and neither does anybody else. Um, imagine w asking an electric guitarist what the best electric guitar is, you know, and uh, there are a million yeah. questions. There's no right tool for the job. There are many, right. it, but somehow our string playing colleagues in general, and even the electric ones, just to some extent, um, will spend 30 years figuring out how to get just the right nuance using the side of the hair but can't be bothered to spend five minutes researching the difference between a tube amp yeah. and a solid state, right? Yeah. Or, you know, or why they should, you know, look into... So I, this is something that really vexes me. But to answer your question, uh, what came out of my own sort of inquiry uh, was the pickup test and the improviser's guide to the jello. Those sort of two yes. things. The improviser's guide for yeah. what I do with my uh, uh, cello playing and specifically helping cellists you know, uh, uh, well, I'll talk about the improvisers guide a little bit later. The pickup test is, uh, essentially that thing. And part of the pickup test was, uh, first of all, just to create a library that, uh, allows us to finally get behind the, beyond the hyperbole that we see, like all, you know, in an yeah. internet forum, Hey, what's the best? My pickup sounds pretty good. You know, whatever. Well, it's like, uh, who cares? Like that's, that's not really a good indicator yeah, of you know how help. it's going to work yeah. with my playing style my instrument with my effects in the in the types of venues and situations i play with so i wanted to do something that got us beyond that hyperbole and really got us to the level of you know the guitar players enjoy you know guitars have guitar player magazine and sweetwater and all these other things where you know they actually have resources where you know you can go on and listen to high level players comparing gear, right, in a somewhat controlled setting. And so yeah. what what I did is is we created a library and I invented a media player that sort of works like a DAW, uh, a digital audio workstation, like Logic mm -hmm. or Ableton, right, um, where you can hear the same instrument played by the same player in the same room with the same mics, uh, going into the same kind of full range amplifier and the same preamp, the same DI box, playing the same excerpts, including, you know, bowed, double stopped, chopping, right? And uh, which often some pickups struggle with, right? Uh, and uh, plucking. And then the DAW part is that you can hear it, you know, either directly into, you know, a very, very clean studio preamp, or you can hear it in an acoustically isolated uh, amplifier in a different room, or you can just hear a microphone in the room to hear if it actually affects your acoustic sound, which is important if you're, you know, playing mostly, right. you know, if you're a gypsy jazz musician or, you know, you, you know, you don't want anything to sort of affect the pure tone of your instrument. You can hear right. that as well. Um, yeah. now this tech thing is sort of like another evolution of that where, um, the mission is really sort of to push all amplified string playing forward of the site. So one of the things that, that, that we've done is this tech fellowship where what we're doing is, is we're offering uh, for five global fellows, uh, any age, any ability level, 
uh, any whatever, uh, well, not any ability level, but any uh, sort of musical background. Style. Uh, or... Any style. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, coffee time. Um, <laughs> I, I, the, the chance to come and to uh, uh, join us, it's, it's, we're, we're going to be doing it virtually uh, due to, you know, some COVID issues and, you know, when, when it all <laughs> yeah. started. Right. But it's right. going to be three days worth of labs, interactive labs, uh, workshops, uh, um, uh, group, uh, uh, assignments, and it's going to happen over, over a month and a half. Uh, and there's going to be, th- yeah, so three classes and basically it's going to meet all day, those three days. And, uh, yeah, we're, we want to open it up to five, either violinists, violists, or cellists, uh, who are really, truly pushing the boundaries of, creative string playing. And some of the classes we're going to be offering include things like uh, sound design, uh, uh, Max for Live, um, uh, uh, sort of advanced MIDI concepts, again, based around, uh, uh, and, and, and this is all going to be based around string-specific topics. So this, these are going to be some of the first, and in other cases, I would say the most advanced classes, at least that I've ever seen, uh, on these topics for people that are, you know, absolute pros and, you know, are really making their careers, uh, doing, you know, stuff that's, that's on the cutting edge. Uh, we're going to be talking about, yeah, I mentioned sound design and all of the things going on and IRs and artificial intelligence and uh, interesting ways that, you know, that you can really, really uh, take. We're hoping to be able to take these artists uh, uh, and help to take them to the next level and answer some of the questions that uh, they may have been not able to find answers to. And hopefully just to, you know, hang out and inspire them and have them inspire and collaborate with each other. That's awesome. So when is this going to happen? Um, it's going to, I think the deadline for enrollment or for applications is in a couple of weeks. Uh, and then it's going to happen uh, at the beginning of next year. There are three dates. If you want any information, uh, I don't have the dates in front of me, unfortunately, but uh, you can just go to uh, the pickuptest.com and click on the tab uh, tech, T-E-K. Great. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. You know, all and all you have to do is send in. I think it's two YouTube videos or three YouTube. We made it as simple as it could possibly be, as frictionless as they, as they say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We just want you know the best and the brightest. Uh, so, yeah. Cool. Cool. Hopefully, this will get out there in time for uh, for people to to hear this and still apply. Yes, sir. Well, very cool. And um, let's let's go back, uh, um, dig back for a second to the. Um, uh, improviser's guide yeah. to the cello. Yeah, uh, and maybe tie tie that into uh, maybe you have a riff or a lick or something that you uh, that we could groove hack a little bit here and maybe take apart. I don't know if you have oh cool anything like that you want to. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, uh, why dismember? don't we do it in two parts? I'll show you something okay. and then we can dismember something together. So I, I and I love talking <laughs> about this and you know this is actually somewhat based off of another. For some reason, a uh, controversial video that, that we made. But the idea of the improviser's guide and what makes it uh, so important uh, to me is, is that I feel like in, in, in creative 
uh, cello teaching, a lot of the time we've sort of had these 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 two schools, these two approaches, right? And there's 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 rote, right, which is copying, and that uh, comes to us from you know the fiddle tradition and the Indian Carnatic tradition and you know pretty much all world music traditions, right? Um, yeah. And of course that's very beautiful and profound. Uh, but it can also be limiting, especially when we're talking about applying, you know, concepts that were developed maybe on other instruments <laughs> a lot of the time mm-hmm. uh, to this one um, it, it, or to the violin for that matter. Let's just call mm-hmm. it applying it to, you know, bow and fifths and no frets land. Right. Um, right. <laughs> now, the, the other major category we often see, I like to call it uh, reinventing the wheel, which is, uh, you know, what chord should I play over an altered, or what what scale should I play over an altered chord? Or here's a pentatonic scale. This is how you play it. Very cool. But what I found was in my own playing is that even though I was a you know complete nerd for you know theory and jazz books and had done my best to absorb as much of that as I could as early as I could, um, and you know obviously we didn't have YouTube, so I didn't have access to you know. Uh, although I had transcribed literally every Mark Summer solo from every album going back to the Wyndham Hill days, you know, back to Sky Life, I think. Yeah, the first time I met Mark after all of that, I came to him and I had like my folder and it was this thick and I was like, which, which solo? And he was horrified. <laughs> and I was like, dude. What? But, but so my point is, is I found even, you know, given that, uh, there was somehow a major gap between me and the type of freedom I wanted, the type of uh, the real mm-hmm. ability to be able to access my instrument in the same way I saw my friends that played horn or my friends that played guitar or bass. And I started to yeah. think about what is that gap? Like, you know, if you could just give cellists the Charlie Parker Omni book and, you know, we'd, we, then, and they would be able to learn how to play the way I think a lot of saxophone players at least get their start, we'd have a lot more cellists that can really improvise, especially when we're talking about, you know, more harmonically interesting stuff. And that's really not the case. So I I, I thought, well, you know, what is this unique gap? And this is what the improviser's guide is all about. And this is sort of what makes it important to me. Uh, And I I think the the fundamental thing uh, with the cello and the reason for this, it goes back to the absolute foundation of how we're taught our instrument. Mm-hmm. So uh, obviously for most musicians, for string players, unfortunately, that usually starts with scales. I say unfortunately because right. it really should start with chords, right? Uh, but I, I, I believe. Uh, but if I play a scale as a cellist, like say an E-flat major scale, right? This is the standard fingering we all learn. Right? So what happens is, is that with that two octave scale, I already had to shift like six times to play two octaves, right? So th- right. this is obviously a disaster when it comes to, to changing the order of those notes and trying to improvise. It's great for repertoire-based playing and learning to shift and string cross, but it, but it gets even worse, Tracy, because here is the fingering for that same E-flat major arpeggio. At least the first two octaves of it, right? So did you notice that that 
arpeggio used totally different fingerings. Yeah. Took me to yeah, a, a completely different place in the fingerboard. Had no yeah. relationship to, and then of course if I was asked to strum an E flat major chord, I would probably do it like this. Right? right? Which also, did you notice? Totally different fingerings, totally different position, no relation to each other, right? Except for maybe the starting finger in that case. It, the point being is that the core foundational element of being able to improvise in Western tonal music, any style, right? Once we get beyond, you know, our first blues or sort of one chord jammy or, you know, whatever we'd start a child on, uh, is that ability to be able to connect harmony and melody, right? Uh, that ability, chords and arpeggios, you know, however you want to you wanna think of it. And is it any wonder that we're completely, uh, cellists certainly, I, when I say we, uh, you know, out of sorts when it comes to this task uh, compared to, say, our piano friends or our guitarist friends with the caged method, right? Um, uh, uh, yeah. it, so this to me was just the absolute core of the problem. Uh, uh, the very foundational elements that we're taught with and that we use to sort of conceive of the fingerboard for the first time and understand where yeah. notes and harmonies and that synaptic connection between sort of our hand and our ear is all formed in the system yeah. that's made for repertoire bass playing but is could not be more dysfunctional when it comes to actual uh, you know, uh, improvising, right? Uh, and doesn't need to be, and does not need to be. It's just, that's the approach, that's the melodic-based, virtuosic-based approach to string playing that has become traditional. Um, yes. But on, it's not the way guitar is taught. On the nose. It's not the way anyone who successfully improvises on their instrument learns their instrument. And there are a few right. other things with it. You know, you mentioned guitar. Guitarists learn chords first, traditionally. Um, and the reason is, is because that helps to model sort of the architecture of how music works in the brain. In other words, the chord contains the good notes, or let's call them the best notes. Uh, I hesitate to use that terminology, but I think you could, you know, it makes sense, right? Yeah, the chord notes, anyway. That's right, tones, exactly. Yeah. And then the other notes, it, they're the skeleton. They're, and they're the least complex version of that skeleton if we're talking about triads. And then in between those, you can fill in a note or two here and there to form a pentatonic and then eventually a seven-note version of the scale if we're talking about you know most, most harmony, most scale, seven notes, right? And so uh, we should really be doing this backwards, Tracy. We should be learning uh, chords and arpeggios first, scales yep. second, and they should yep. all be from a consistent... Uh, architecture wherein you're using the same fingerings and the same concepts to, yes. to fill in those gaps so that playing, it, not only are you connecting melody and harmony, but the process becomes thought-free. So what I, what I do in the improviser's guide is is I teach a system based off of that. We start with chords, then we go to uh, uh, adding a note to become pentatonics, and then into seven-note scales, and then more advanced uh, scales and harmony. That's awesome. Man. Uh, That's fascinating. Yeah, and it's totally just based off of one or two simple concepts, like counting one, two, three. Good things come in pairs, so that you can literally play anywhere on the instrument, any key, without thinking. Uh, hmm. The other two things that are missing, of course, is is that it's not visual spatial, right? Once we lose our Suzuki tapes, unlike our successful guitar improviser friends or our uh, bass electric bass player friends. Uh, we stop, we start reading notes because maybe our orchestra teacher wants us to, 
And uh, we stop really visualizing our fingerboard and really seeing patterns and shapes in the same way. I, obviously, you have your uh, frets on the bottom strings, right? Uh, um, not anymore. I oh, haven't had those for years. Gone. Actually. Okay. Yeah. Well, back yeah. in the day, I remember you had those frets yes, on the I bottom strings. And I noticed yeah. that kids who, you know, for a little while, my school, we were sort of the West Coast electric violin shop. They would send us all of their stuff. And, you know, if a kid was interested in something, we'd. But I loved having every electric instrument around just to kind of see it and play it myself. Yeah. Uh, and it was fascinating to me how kids that picked up the wood instruments, uh, all of a sudden, they really started to change uh, yeah. over the weeks and the months in sort of their ability to just get this stuff. Uh, we're all very visual beings, especially in today's sort of world, right? And it's I think it's ridiculous that that gets left off. So a visual spatial yeah. approach, a full range approach, an approach that's totally formulaic. That's 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 really what we need. Uh, so very interesting, very interesting, man. And you know, I, as you know, I'm a huge believer that um, you know the way we're going to change the future of string playing is by changing the way it's taught. Obviously, that's that's the only way to do it. Uh, we have to teach teachers how to approach this stuff differently. Yes. Uh, and of course, the big difference that I um, obsess over. Um, because there are certainly other ways to teach melodic playing as well. Um, you know, I mean, Suzuki is definitely, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the right direction. Mm -hmm. The whole idea of getting off the page and let's do this, you know, like as an oral tradition. Critically important. Um, which, is, which, is, which is great. Um, but what I'm really focused on is this idea of teaching rhythm and approaching your instrument in a way that's uh, that can be used to support other instruments, other players. Right. How can I back somebody up on my cello? How can I play some chords? And you know that it seems to me that um, aside from just uh, a whole half of our musical nature that's been ignored, mm -hmm. um, it's really useful to be able to do to do that better now. You know, maybe cellists and violists, you know, have been doing that more than upper string players, yeah. you know, pulling your, your weight uh, in terms of being supportive. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> violin players kind of get supported. <laughs> right. You know. The you egomaniacs. Know, the violas the... <laughs> going like, hey, I've been supporting for years here on, you know, the, the upbeats. <laughs> you know. But... Um, but there, but generally, we are not. Whether you're playing viola or cello, you're not taught chords. You're not taught how to read a chord chart. That's yes, yeah. That's yeah. Singer songwriter you know, skills. And we're not, and we're not talking about you know reading, um, you know, some crazy fusion jazz or no. you know um, Coltrane changes. We're talking about just like read a two chord vamp yes. and be able to follow through that, or maybe a blues or something a blues type of 16 bar tune uh, rock and roll songs just to be able to do some simple basic here's a one chord here's a five chord how do i play that on my instrument how do i put that across yeah it's it tra with that's, a bow. that's so well put man and i i think it's like a it's a shocking uh you know of all of the great things that you know the conservatory offers this is like a just a complete, glaring complete hole. malpractice. Yes, it's a glaring hole because, you know, as as I like to say, uh, you know, I have a singer songwriter skills, you know, class. Obviously, you know, taken from String Project that I do on the side. Yep. And you know, the, it always starts with, you know, this is, you know, 
the first thing you need to do, um, I think it was, yeah, it was for the Strat or something. They asked, it was like me, Christian, and Daryl Anger. They asked, it was like they want, they asked us to do like a piece where we each contributed some advice to, uh, you mm-hmm. know, to teachers. Like, how do you get your, and the, the piece of advice I said is teach your kids how to read music. And, you know, the Strat was like, well, what are you talking about? They're, they're every every young cellist learns how to read music. I said, not the type of music that with the eggs and the dots, man. The type of music that <laughs> 90% of the world actually reads, right? Yeah. And if you, if you can't read the type of music that 90% of the world reads, you are musically illiterate. I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> it's just awesome. kind of what it comes down it's to. True. It, it, it just is, is man. It, it's just, it's, it's the bottom line for me. So I, I, yeah, I'm so with you on that. Uh, you know, I always talk about, uh, I do, I did a series a little while back and I may do it again. We'll call it, think of this as a pre-plug uh, called Complete uh, Musicianship. And the point of the, the class is in three parts was just a just to kind of work on that big question that we all have, the number one question of what the hell do I practice? Uh, and obviously as classical, most of us are classically trained, we know how to work on a passage or, uh, you know, basically get, get a piece ready for a recital. Like the, the modalities of right. thinking and working that go, that take us that far, you know, to sort of a technical level of, you know, executing the thing. Most of us are quite good at that and pretty well trained in that. But then when you start talking about time and groove, vocabulary, coming up with your own and putting all of that together, improvisation, and turning that into your own voice, this is like, you know, when I think of a musician, I think about somebody that can speak. You know, I, I think about it as speaking. Like, what is it, how, how does it feel to improvise at a high level? It feels like talking, right? Like, I'm hearing you right, talk, Tracy, you know. Fluent. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not struggling for certain words. I can respond instantly. There's this kind of, what does fluency mean? We've all experienced it here. You know, so this is sort of a first principles, Kenny Werner approach. What kind of an ear do we need to be able to do yeah. that? You know, we need an ear that, you know, is extremely fast, right? Uh, we need an ear that, you know, we need a strong mental tape recorder. We need the ability to, I call it multi-track listening, which a lot of the time as string players we're not so good at because we're practicing our single line and, you know, we, I mean, that's right. 99% of not every listening rehearsal. to the big picture. Exactly, right? Or being able just to hear multiple things at the same time comfortably yeah. as we play to our part. To pay attention to the bass line if you're a violinist. Yeah, exactly. And isn't that every youth orchestra rehearsal, 99%? You're not listening to the other ones. Play softer. Can't you hear they have the melody? Some version of you're not listening. I wanted to mention one other thing. You know, you were talking about, you know, teachers and dealing with, uh, you know, how do we teach them and talk to them about groove. You know, what I found with teaching groove, especially in like a group class setting, is that a lot of the time, I think the difficulty starts with finding a good vehicle to do that. Being able to teach these more, I think, valuable, but can be more, uh, more difficult concepts. You know, you've got kids that have spent their whole lives learning to like intellectualize rhythm and not feel it. You know, it's the yeah. one and two and, you know, all of the problems with, you yep. know, sort of, you know, the way especially string players are taught sort of from the ground up, you know, in their yes. private lessons and whatever. And that to me is like, you know, that, you know, that that's that's really a challenging well, thing. The thing that that I think that I keep coming back to as as being the kind of cure all solution on a very kind of simplistic basis 
um, is movement uh, when it comes to rhythm. Yeah. So much, uh, uh, you know, of classical music is is so cerebral. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's taught through our eyes from right. a page, from a page into our eyes, and then hopefully noodles around comes out of our fingers, <laughs> right? Right. You know, um, but. Actually, it should come from the ground up, from your the way you're moving, the way you're shifting your weight and moving your body rhythmically. Yes. And, you know, I like to say that rhythmic music comes from rhythmic movement. Yes. It comes out of the fact it's a, a byproduct of the fact that we're moving in mm. a rhythmic way and we're making a rhythmic sound because of that, because we have stuff in our hands that makes sounds when we move rhythmically. Right. Uh, and that's what we're hearing. And to try to recreate that through the end result of it and going backwards, like, well, here's the way it came out. So let's look at the, where those notes are yeah. and try to recreate them through your brain onto your instrument. So you get people who are counting and trying to put notes in the right places and be correct right. rather than doing a completely opposite function, which is to dance, to be free Feel physically. Space. Yeah. To feel right and to move in space with other people, which is a significant part of the magic of music, is that we are not moving in an isolated manner when we're playing a groove. We're moving in a unison with other people. Yeah. Uh, we're in unison with other people. Yeah. What I keep getting back to is this sort of, uh, I don't know if you would call it reductive thinking, but um, how can I simplify this? How can I find the one simple through line because my brain just you know at a certain point um i i it's not that i can't think yeah um uh but i don't always want to sometimes i choose right. well that's fun <laughs> that, that, not to, that can be fun know? yeah uh, and one of the funny things about uh less classical playing more groove oriented playing is that it is more physical, less cerebral. Mm-hmm. It actually um, requires, uh, in order to really be a good rhythm player, at some point or another, you have to learn how to trust your body and the simplicity of how that functions. Yeah. Because uh, at a certain point, we have to just make it work in our body, and it has to be something that... Um, we can start from something very complex or end up somewhere very complex, but uh, uh, along somewhere along the way, we have to internalize it in a very visceral way, which is not necessarily cerebral and is not complex. It can be very simple. Right. So, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it's a funny dichotomy of, of, of something that can be incredibly, I mean, rhythm can be so incredibly complex, and yet the underlying feeling of it is actually quite simple and natural and... and um, yeah, you know, to to find the underlying uh, simplicity, I guess, behind it. Yeah, is, is is the trick. Yeah, if it doesn't feel simple, we're we're in trouble. Or I think there's a Stevie Ray Vaughan quote. He said, "Whenever I've had to think on stage, I knew I was finished," or something something to that extent. <laughs> so yeah, like avoiding thinking is huge. I I, I think it's, I'm right there with him. Right there with yeah, him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. Yeah. You know. Speaking of thinking, perhaps we've come to that. Moments in the show. Ah. The Not My Gig game. <laughs> I don't know if you're 
if you're prepared to play this uh, little game we do. I hope I'm prepared. The, uh, I hope I'm prepared. I've, I've, I've heard it on a previous... Uh, There's no way to prepare for this, my episodes. friend. I know, whole, I know. That's what I was going to say. That is the whole point. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. I'm sort of... We are... It's designed to catch you <laughs> unprepared and okay. flat-footed. Got it. And to that end, Jacob Zucchelli, creator of The Improviser's Guide to the Cello. Yes, sir. We're going to find out how much you know about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> okay. This is not going to be good. <laughs> so get two out of three right and you win. Here we go. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Question number one. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy trilogy is a set of novels. How many novels are in the trilogy? <laughs> a, three, B, five, or C, two? Adams is such a weird guy. I would not be surprised. Well, you got the author very, very good. So you've got some. I would not be surprised if it's not three. I'm going to go with three, though. I'm going to go with three. <laughs> okay. Well, the U.S. edition of the fifth book was <laughs> was originally released with the legend on the cover: "The fifth book in the increasingly inaccurately named Hitchhiker's Trilogy." <laughs> the blurb on the fifth book describes it as, quote, the book that gives a whole new meaning to the word trilogy. <laughs> oh, my God. That is awesome. Oh, my gosh. Okay. okay. No worries. No worries. You still got two <laughs> questions to go here. All right. Can I win your voice two? on my home answering machine? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Here we go. Number two. In the novel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there is a fictional guide called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. True or false, the cover of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has the words on it, steal this book. False. That's Abby Hoffman, right? Correct. Yes. You are correct. Okay. Still have a chance. Still have a chance. It was Abby Hoffman whose famous counterculture book from the 60s was Steal This Book. Uh, the cover of the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in the book it says, Don't Panic. That's right. Cover. That's right. I, I actually <laughs> knew that. Actually, also in the novel, the guide isn't really a book. But is an iPad kind of electronic tablety thing? Yeah, which was kind of amazingly visionary back in the seventies. Yeah, man. When uh, Douglas Adams wrote this thing, very, Holy very cow. definitely uh, had an yeah, eye very, towards the future. It's it's so fun to see those guys. Yeah, uh, add the Asimovs okay. and the, all those guys. That yeah. yeah, predicted all right. things. One right, one right. And here we go. Your third and final question. The fictional The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is the top-selling title by the fictional publisher Megadodo Publications. This is all within the book, within the novel. Yeah. Which of these other fictional best-selling titles did the fictional The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy outsell in the novel The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? <laughs> okay. Was it A... 
The Celestial Home Care Omnibus. <laughs> B, 53 more things to do in zero gravity. Or C, Encyclopedia Galactica. I'm going to go with A. <laughs> the Celestial Home Care Omnibus. Yes. Well, in the guide's own oh. entry on itself, oh. it is dis it is described, because it's a guide to the galaxy, and it, in its own guide, it describes mm -hmm. itself. Yes. Yeah. It's described as being Megadota's publica Megadota Publications' most successful book. It's also described as being more popular than the Celestial Home Care Omnibus, better selling than 53 more things to do in zero gravity, and it also states that it supplanted the Encyclopedia Galactica oh, as a standard information book for two reasons. One of them being that it sells for a cheaper price than Encyclopedia <laughs> Galactica. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, why pay for more expensive facts when sure. you can get them cheaper? And the other being that it has the words, don't panic, printed on its cover. <laughs> <laughs> that was yes. its reason for outselling the encyclopedias. So. Oh, man. So I would say you got two out of three right, and you win. <laughs> not my gig hitchhiker guide quiz. Wow, man. Thank you, thank Proving you. that once you have a guide, you know about guides, I guess. That's what proves. <laughs> Hopefully you'll be inserting some crowd noise. I want confetti, and yes, game show music, the whole thing. Well, Jacob... It's been awesome to have you here on the show and for getting down in the weeds and really explaining how some of this stuff works on cello, works for you, and all of the good work you've been doing in L.A. there um, for progressive string players. That's some pretty incredible stuff. I, I, I wish you'd get that school back up and running, the Strings Project L.A., man. Wow, what a cool resource that was. Well, you would be our first guest uh, <laughs> uh, back. But we still do, every year we do the L.A. Creative String Festival. Uh, oh, obviously, nice. it, was, it was out for about a year or so but uh, with COVID. But it would have been yeah. our ninth annual. So uh, wow. we'll, we'll, we'll stay in touch. You're <laughs> very high yeah. on the list. The first few years, oh, it was mostly local talent. And yeah, then right. finally, we grew to this last one. It was Rashad and Lily Hayden and uh, oh, nice. Kevin Alushala, the beatboxing cello guy from the Pentatonics. Uh, yes. And then you know I always play and jam with everybody. But uh, man, nice. it, that that's we'll, we'll 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 definitely stay in touch in that one when that. Very kicks cool, off. very cool, man. The place for progressive string players to be. <laughs> Yeah, man, and and tell people how to find you. Uh, although I will be linking this, but it's always good to uh, to hear from you. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, JacobSakelli.com, theimprovisersguide.com with an O, pickuptest.com, uh, and we're on YouTube, all the socials, uh, and uh, the websites. Great, awesome, dude. Thanks so much for being here, man. Thank you, Tracy. You're amazing. Really appreciate uh, you. Likewise. Thanks. Likewise, brother. Keep doing what you do. You too, man. You too. Thanks for listening. If you want to stay in touch, please join the For the Greater Groove Facebook group. See ya. Groove on. Groove on.